Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, and along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. How's life going in Canada? It's been a really busy few weeks. We've been very fortunate to have Nicole Foss of The Automatic Earth here in town, as well as Richard Heinberg of the Post Carbon Institute. What's it like to have Nicole Foss and Richard Heinberg in town, Justin? That must be an exciting time for you. Those are two of our big-time heroes, aren't they? You and I, we've been following Peak Oil for a long time, and so to have two of the key members of the Peak Oil community here in Vancouver uh, within just a week of each other has been really great and great turnout at their events here. Village Vancouver, our local transition talents initiative, has been working hard to organize events for them. And when we had Richard Heinberg's talk the other night, about 250 people turned out. So we had a really good turnout. And uh, Richard Heinberg also did a talk at UBC and he did a guest lecture in a class at UBC about energy and energy concepts and so we've had him going all around we had him do a, a meeting with the city of Vancouver to talk about how the city of Vancouver can adapt to the end of economic growth and a really core part of Nicole Foss's message was how to get prepared and so Richard Heinberg was talking more about the general big picture issues and Nicole Foss was too but Nicole Foss being from Canada was able to address more of the Canadian context and well in 2008 in the U.S., the amount of debt per person started leveling off. In Canada, it just kept shooting up to the point where now there's more personal debt in Canada on an individual basis than there is in the United States per capita. So Canada is very vulnerable to a recession because if people start losing jobs, they can't make their monthly credit card payments because they have so much personal debt. So Justin, who are we talking to on today's podcast? Today we're speaking with Steve Lambert about taking art and using it to change behavior, to get people to reconsider their preconceived notions, and his thoughts on moving past just raising awareness into actually reinforcing and changing people's behavior. And we talk with Steve about a number of topics on the balance between making a piece of art for one person so it can help that one person, but also the inefficiency of doing so. And we also talk about the advantages of art in doing things that can reinforce concepts of sustainability and behavior change in ways that journalism and research science can't. We talk about utopias, we talk about views on jobs, how, you know, silly jobs can be sometimes because Steve's had a number of silly jobs. Steve is also a professor and we talked about his views on education and what it's like to bring in students who are completely used to just working for a grade and trying to change their viewpoint around. And so we're excited to jump into the conversation. We are excited. Let's jump right into the conversation and hear what Steve Lambert has to say. Steve, 
I founded the anti-advertising agency and did that for about six years. I was a fellow at iBeam, Center for Art and Technology. Uh, that's iBeam, E-Y-E-B-E-A-M. Sometimes I'd say it fast and people think I worked at IBM, which is not true. I also co-founded the Center for Artistic Activism with Steve Duncombe, which is something I'm working on now. And I'm a professor at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Could you tell us a little bit about the Center for Artistic Activism? That sounds really cool. Yeah, so Steve and I were the two Steves in the organization. And um, he and I had been doing a lot of research because he has a, has a background in sociology and I have a background in sociology and also activism and art. And because of the sort of social science background, we're always wondering, like, how do we know if this stuff is working and how do you evaluate it? How do you look at that? You know, when it has to do with art, you know, it's not an election where you can look at the votes or it's not a marketing campaign where you can look at sales numbers, right? This is like right. artists who are trying to create a better world and how do you measure the impact of that artist or that project? And so what we started doing is asking people who did that work how they evaluated it. We've done about 25 different interviews with artists, say creative activists, about their work and how they know whether or not that it's doing anything at all. And then through that, are starting to work on a book. And then that also turned into a sort of curriculum that we came up with based on our backgrounds and this information that we had collected on how artists can approach doing activism and then how act activists can embed creative practice into their work to make stronger work, to make more effective work. What sort of criteria do you have for an effectively activist work? One answer, and you might say it's a cheap answer, is to ask the person who made it. What were you intending to do? And did you do it? Our work, I think, really is helping them come up with better questions, right? Or better goals. And to really figure out the power that they have as artists. Because as an artist, you can do things that other practitioners, other professionals can't, right? So as an artist, I can make a project that a journalist could never do, right? It could tell the truth. It could bring to light certain things that a journalist would be interested in or that might overlap with journalism, but I can also do other things that journalism could never do. And it goes on and on, right, with all these different kinds of, you know, a researcher or all different kinds of practices, right? Like art is really about a hybrid of di these different things. So when you realize that you have this other sort of ability unique in the world or in this kind of work, then it's like, really, what do you want to do? And for example, I might ask an artist, like, what do you want to do with this work? And they'll say, I want to raise awareness, which is like my least favorite answer in the world. Because <laughs> raising awareness doesn't change anything. It's a step towards changing things. But like people knowing something doesn't actually change it. It's only a step on the way, right? You might know people that smoke. It's really hard to find someone in the world that doesn't know that smoking is gonna kill them. Does smoking cause lung cancer? Yes. Them not knowing that is not what keeps them from quitting. There's a whole ton of reasons why they don't quit. They like it, you know? They find it relaxing. A bunch of people they know smoke. They've done it for a really long time, you know? There's all these other factors. So sometimes activists, we get this idea in our heads that like, oh, we just, I just need to raise awareness about this issue. People don't understand or they don't know. And the truth is, like, it's really hard to get the scoop on something and let everyone know and, like, have them all be like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And then now everything is going to change. 
that that lack of information isn't what keeps people from changing. It's one of the many things that keep people from changing. So that would be an example of something we would go over in these workshops that we've done around the country with activists, which is talking about, all right, what are the real goals here? And how can you come up with new creative ways of getting to those goals that go beyond the activist strategies that you know aren't really working? Yeah, so you were mentioning cigarette packs, and they have those massive labels on them. And in Canada, it's like even crazier than in the U.S. It's like half yeah. the pack is just like this massive label about uh, you know the dangers of smoking, and yet people still smoke, like you're saying. And so, what really is the way to take that awareness that kind of exists? I think generally one of the reasons the Occupy movement has seen so much success in getting people out in the streets is because there has just been this like simmering understanding and awareness and people were just kind of waiting at something that could drive them to action. I mean, do you think that art can have a role in creating that effective action? Is that the way to take this general awareness and turn it into action or is there something else? Going back to this sort of mass communication models and sociology models of like, why do social movements form and what are the things that make people go from one behavior to changing that behavior, right? Because that's really what it's about. It's not so much about providing information, but changing behavior. Usually that's the goal. So what are the steps that lead to people changing their behavior? Some of the early steps are like awareness or learning about that issue. And then there's other steps that happen later, like them deciding that they agree, right? So you can't really move forward from beyond that step without them deciding that they agree with you. After that, it's them remembering later that they think this. Another example I give is like if I wanted to be a vegetarian or eat more vegetables instead of meat or something. When I was at the restaurant ordering food, I'd have to remember to order more vegetables to change my order or like look at the other part of the menu. Then you get into these old habits and like, I don't know, there's all kinds of things where it's like, I want, I meant to do this. I know it's good for me and I want to do it, but I keep forgetting. Or like at the end of the day, you didn't get to the gym. So like agreement isn't even getting to that behavior change. So then after agreement and remembering is, is actually making the decision. So I'm in this restaurant, I'm looking at this menu. I think like, oh, I really should eat more vegetables. But then I might decide that's not what I'm going to do tonight. I don't really feel like it, you know. So there's all these different sort of hurdles that you have to jump just to get to someone to make a decision and follow through with it and to make that change. And even then they've done it once. And then you have to get them to repeat that change. So there has to be some kind of reinforcement of the, this new behavior. Your friends have to be like, hey, that's really great. Or like not tease you about eating vegetables or not smoking or, you know, whatever it is. So there has to be cultural change and then and reinforcement and so on and so forth. And I think that artists and activists can come in at any point along the spectrum. There's all different kinds of people that are at different stages of where they're at and what they believe and what they're willing to do, what they're remembering to do and the choices that they're making. And the ethics part is is really coming in at, at the right stage. So if if everyone is making the decision or like the problem really is reinforcement and you're still raising awareness, then you're being ineffective. You're wasting your time and you only have so much time, you know, only like you're going to die and you, and people get burned out. So like right. it's really about analyzing that situation, figuring out what the right point to intervene is and then and doing your best, you know, it doesn't always work. Yeah. That's true. And like you said, every choice that you make requires a lot of little choices along the way. Like somebody doesn't just decide to become a vegetarian and then 
you know, just stopped eating meat, they have to decide to go to the grocery store and just to not buy that meat. When every time they go to the restaurant, they have to not buy that meat and just not eat it. And even when their friends are eating it, they just have to decide again not to eat it. So every one of those little actions is, is just reinforcing that decision. And you have to keep making that decision over and over and over again. Is there yeah. a way that, that we can turn the awareness of the action, the consequences of the action? Is there a way that we can turn this into remembering and agreement, like you said, without the the pain that comes along with it, like you said, people making fun of them. Is there some way that we can jolt an entire population into a decision like this on a mass scale? It's hard to think about things on a mass scale because people are at all different points, right? So on a mass scale, right, like if you're trying to reach everyone, you have to have a really broad message. The most effective message is to an audience of one, because then you can talk to that person, you can figure out where they're at, you can do a bunch of research on that particular person and who they are and what they do and why, and then make a project or something, some kind of action that is really tailored to that one person and could be incredibly effective. It's not very efficient, <laughs> of course, but it would be incredibly effective. So you're always balancing what's effective versus what's efficient, what's, a, what's the best use of your time. And that, that also has, kind of gets to ethics too, right? Because if you get that balance off and aren't aware of other ways you could be working, and it can do harm. So you want to balance a good number of people that you can reach so that your work actually you know, can have some meaning on a bigger scale, but also can be effective in reaching those people. This kind of thing would be criticized as being preaching to the converted, right? But preaching to the converted has value because you've taken an audience that already agrees with you and you're supporting them, right? So like when I lived in San Francisco, this is this huge anti-war town, very progressive. And there's still marches that happen there. And there's still, you know, like actions and activists and all kinds of stuff that happens there because it reinforces, part of the role is reinforcing that culture and expanding the culture out from there. Um, like that's why people go to church every Sunday because you're reinforcing and supporting a community that already believes, you know? So preaching to the converted, it has value. And so that would be one example of maybe an un unpopular example, but one example of breaking off a part of that bigger group and supporting them. And you could do that all along the way. So it really is a diversity of strategies and tactics. And I don't think that there's one thing that could cause the overthrow of capitalism or one action that one group could take that would really do that. And, you know, the shame is that sometimes we get caught up in thinking that way, that if we just do this one thing or if we can get this pamphlet, everyone to read this one pamphlet, then bam, then the revolution is going to come. And when that doesn't happen, it's like, well, you get super discouraged and then those people quit. You know, or they just keep doing the same thing. I don't know which is worse. What would it look like to actually make art for a single person? That that seems like such a I, crazy. Well, everyone else would be fucking horrible. Because <laughs> 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 like it's not for you. Right. Yeah. Because like you're saying, there's always that balance between efficiency. You know, you want your work to get out and be exposed to people because there's just that rewarding aspect of the exposure and having people, you know, acknowledge the thought and the work that went into into a piece, but. But also, there's that balance between a lot of people aren't going to understand it. They're, it's just not going to resonate with them. And how is it that you can actually start creating something that has that niche kind of impact, but 
can maybe more people can find out about it? Yeah, well, I mean, you can have things that work on several layers or levels, right? So it could be super effective for one certain group and targeted at a, at a kind of people that maybe are on the brink of making a decision to change their behavior for whatever campaign you're working on, but also supports and reinforces those that have already made that decision and provides a little bit of information for those that know nothing about what you're talking about. And that's kind of another great thing about art is that when it's good, it works on multiple levels and it has many different layers of meaning. But more than that, I think it's like pulling back and asking artists to think about audience. And most artists are not trained to do that. That is not part of art school, unless you're in theater or film, sometimes music. But like the visual arts, you go into your studio alone and you make this thing and then you come out and you show it to people. And you're kind of taught to not care what they think. It's really about you and expression, right? I'm stereotyping arts education. It's, it's obviously like much more complex, but that is a big theme of art making. You're not taught to think about audiences and different kinds of audiences and, how, and communicating to those audiences. So that's what the Center for Artistic Activism, like that's what we try to bring to artists is really thinking about audiences and thinking about working in a campaign, working with other organizations, figuring out how you can fit in these different processes that can affect a bigger vision. But on the flip side, like say for activists, it's thinking about things that artists know kind of inherently, which is like a lot of what you make is not going to work and that that's okay. Say photographers, like I had this huge revel revelation when I was shooting photos, taking a roll of 36 pictures that on that roll two might be good. And if two were good, that, that that was actually really successful. You know, it's like a one to 18 ratio in that case, right? As activists, if you went out and did an action and one out of 18 worked, you'd be pretty depressed and you'd have a really hard time justifying that to your funders or your yeah. your supporters right like yeah. yeah we have a one in 18 success ratio but that so that's just kind of how creative work is when you're teaching artists about activism it's kind of like teaching them a little bit about advertising right about audiences and and how they interact with their art those are two different kinds of thinking in a way like you're saying activism is much like advertising and mixing those two are, is, is probably a little bit difficult for some people. Well, I would use like a broader term, which is communication. We think of most of the com mass communication in our culture is advertising. Second is politics, right? And then there's some other nonprofit kind of stuff. But really, it's about mass communication. Part of art remaining highbrow and, you know, having some sort of distance is caught up in, oh, we don't, we're not about mass communication. We're separate from advertising. We're separate from politics. We're so, you know, like really kind of walling it off a little bit. But art really is a big part of culture. And to engage in culture and affect culture, you need to know how to communicate to people outside of the art world, to out, that people that would never step into a museum, that have, would never, much less step into like a private gallery, right? And get out into the world and deal with people on the bus, people walking down the sidewalk who are going to be totally confused by most art because there's a real sort of insular language that's cultivated. So talking about communication, when you're not speaking the same language, you can't really get ideas across. It's much more difficult. Do you think there's a value in a way to use artistic expression and works of art to actually break down those barriers that we all build between ourselves? Because in speaking about communication, you know, we're trying to get this message across as activists, but there's just so many people that it's like water off of a duck's feathers. It just it rolls right off because they won't even hear it because they're so closed off uh, to these different possibilities that we may try to express 
it just doesn't even reach them at all. And so do you see that there's a way for particular ways of framing art or putting it forward that it can actually break those barriers? Creating that spectacle and rupture, like that's what it does really well. There's an art to it. And people that understand street theater understand a part of it. And people that do visual art understand how to create something that has the potential to stop people dead in their tracks and get them like wondering, what is this and what does it mean, you know? And when you take art out of an institution, even more so it has that power, right? So like when I see something in a museum that I don't understand, I'm like, well, that's art and I don't get it. I don't get that sculpture or I don't get that painting. It's not for me. And you can move on pretty quickly. But if something like that showed up in the street, it's like, what is this and why is it here? And who put it here and why would somebody do that? And you can create a moment, like a, a rupture that you can, and then that can be a way to start a dialogue, start a conversation, start a thought process in the public that you wouldn't have the opportunity to otherwise. Was that the thought process behind the New York Times issue that you put out into the streets of, of New York City talking about creating a temporary utopia? You know, suddenly the headline on this New York Times issue was the war in Iraq and Afghanistan are over and, and what else was on the front page? It was like a 14 page paper of best case scenario news. So on the front page was a thing about the, how the U.S. had created a maximum wage so that you could only make up to a certain amount of money that would narrow that income gap, you know, so that the maximum wage was 10 times the minimum wage, which we more or less had up until about 1960, I think. And so I was talking about the history of it. Anyway, so that was one of the articles that Guantanamo was going to get shut down. There were national section, local section, a business section. There was a lot of stuff in there, but basically it was best case scenario news that are nine months into the future. Was that kind of the motivation to put that issue out is just like starting to break people's frame of reference? And, and how did you see people reacting? Like what was the reaction to that when you were suddenly taking on people's worldview like head on with positive reality? There were like a few different ideas that were injected in there. One was to try to make all these possible futures as real as possible so that when you got that paper and you held it in your hands, for about 15 seconds, you were like, oh my God, I can't believe all this stuff happened. And you could feel what that was like. So you could feel what it would be like for these wars that have gone on for, at that point, they had gone on for seven or eight years, what it would be like for them to be over. I don't really remember what that's like, you know? So to give people that for about 15 seconds, and then there were enough clues in there on the paper that would let people know that this was not yet the truth. But as you read each story, it was sort of, the stories were written in this way where it explained how this thing had happened. And there was no magic leap into, you know, some fantastic future. It was really about grassroots groups organizing and pressuring the government and businesses to do the right thing. So it was meant to be also a plan for how to make this vision a reality. One of the nice things that came about after was that we had heard from Bill Moyers, one of the people who worked on the paper, sent him a copy as, as a gift just because he wanted him to have one. And he wrote him back and said, I brought the paper to this journalism conference and said, like, this is the kind of thing that we could be doing where like instead of writing a boring policy paper about how things should be, 
really present it and excite people around this idea and show them what that world would be like. So that was part of it. Another part of it was to change the tone of activism from saying this is we want to stop this and we don't want this and we're against this to like this is what we want and this is how it could be better. I'm always happy to see that come about, you know, like you, you see it now more than you did in the past and I hope that we had something to do with that. turned violent as protesters, including fringe anarchists, clashed with police, again leaving their mark on Athens. This is the remnants of public anger, but glass isn't the only thing that's been broken. As the government's passed increasingly unpopular austerity cuts, people have been left asking who can they trust to serve their interests. They already have destroyed a whole generation of young people and their dreams. They will destroy the structure of the society and the infrastructure of the whole country. We know that it is impossible to repay this debt, that we have now uh, signs that it is illegal or odious. Uh, we cannot continue like that because the policy that the government is following actually increases the debt uh, instead of uh, finding a solution. The dream of starting their own business may stay just a dream for most young Americans. Armed with college degrees and loaded with hefty student loans, they enter a marketplace dominated by giant corporations. Robert Porter is a pharmacist. He works for a company that provides help to poisoning victims. He says he's glad to have a job that pays his bills, but sees no chance he could start a business on his own now. We sort of used to be able to go out, like you said, graduate, start a business, have a drugstore, but I think those days are, are, are going away rapidly. Personally, I don't know any young pharmacists that are starting their own business like that. Competition, CBS, Rite Aid, all the Walmart, Target, there's no way, there's no way a new pharmacist could compete. No way. And it's a shame. According to a report by Peter Hart Research Associates, a quarter of workers under the age of 35 in the U.S. can't pay their monthly bills. Another study shows the average net worth of those under 35 in 1984 was three times higher than it is now for the same age group. Millions of people's quality of life is diminished for the profits of a handful of immense stores and corporations. For most young people in the U.S., starting their own business isn't even a consideration. Most of them would be happy just to have a job that at least pays their bills. Many don't even have that. This is the poorest young generation in the U.S. for decades. And the question many ask is, what kind of future can they build? And what will they leave 
for the next generation. All of these pro protest movements that are erupting around the planet, not just the United States, are a sign of the times, I suppose. The entire planet is on the verge of a nervous breakdown this year. And, and so we will probably see a lot more of it this year. Now, in terms of what it will result in, in terms of uh, positive political change, I'm not so sure. It's very hard to see how the situation in the United States will devolve. You see, the Soviet Union was made up of various republics, various countries that uh, went their separate ways, had their own histories. And, and um, once they were free of the Soviet Union, they forged a new future for themselves as separate nations. The United States is basically a bunch of uh, little mini-me states. Each state is uh, a miniature replica of Washington in terms of its, its legal structures, in terms of its governance. So if Washington can't govern, then what, what is to say that the states can do any better on their own? So the crack up here would have to go uh, much further than it did in the Soviet Union, where it's not even clear what kind of political structure would be left to, to pick up the pieces. For now, relative calm has returned to the streets of Athens. Smashed buildings have been patched up and signs of damage swept away. But the simmering discontent hasn't been, and whilst forced medicine appears to bring nothing but pain, many are continuing their call for alternative treatment. Today we're talking with Steve Lambert about art, activism, and utopias. I'm in, in Europe right now and I just actually went to the Louvre where there's thousands and thousands of pieces of art everywhere. And you can really feel the moments in time that these pieces of art depict and it's very easy to see into those people's eyes or through these those people's eyes into those places and times and, and a lot of those times there is no video cameras or there's no photography to be able to grab that moment in time and you can really feel it through the art how can you take art from just capturing history into creating a different world those are portraits right they're made by people that were commissioned by the wealthy to <laughs> make those wealthy people as timeless as possible, you know? And art still has like a foot in that history of one of representation of like, I'm gonna sh either show you the world as it is or how I see it or some version of representing the world. And then also as um, kind of of service or to the rich. There's a lot of other ways that it can work. And one way, right, would be like as a kind of agitation. So a lot of the stuff that I do is about creating these small scale temporary utopias. It exists sort of for a short time in this one space where things actually work better. And the idea partly is to show people how it could be better, but also to get them asking like, why can't we have this? Why can't we have this now? So when you, know, you get that newspaper in your hands, it's like, well, why can't all this stuff be true? Why does it have to be the way that it is now? It's meant to make you slightly uncomfortable, you know? We need to be a little bit uncomfortable in order to like get new ideas. And uh, another thing that a lot of the artists that we talked to that Steve Duncombe and I interviewed is like opening up a space where ideas and thoughts can be had 
that couldn't exist anywhere else. A space that isn't opened up or conversations that aren't opened up in journalism. A way of talking about things that uh, are introducing an idea that can't be introduced in polite conversation. So throw some more examples out there. You mentioned the newspaper. Can you, th- can you throw some more so we can kind of get an idea? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorites is this one that I did in uh, Oakland around the 60th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. And the project was about the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which competed with Los Alamos National Lab to make every nuclear weapon the United States has ever made. It was located about 40 miles from the gallery I was doing this show. And they still maintain our nuclear weapons stockpile, which basically they just start constantly rebuilding these missiles so that they never wear out because we've we signed all these treaties that said we won't make it any new weapons right so it's horrible you know like what happens there is sort of horrible and they justify it with other sort of scientific research that they do there but like it's way outdated it's very unnecessary in the world today but having a conversation with people about that and saying like do you know that 40 miles from here there's this nuclear weapons lab and it's terrible and it's been there for 80 years right that's a difficult conversation to start and not one that people want to have. So what I did was create a map of the facility using aerial photographs that I got from the library and made a very detailed map of every building, you know, all the trees and stuff like that. And uh, it was a three color, really large print that I made hundreds of copies of and then uh, told people, okay, there's this land. It's 40 miles from here and you can do whatever you want with it. And this is your budget. It's $1.6 billion every year. And what do you want to do with this? It's yours. And they would draw in all different kinds of things. One was like a nine hole golf course. One was a, they were going to flood every street and turn it into like a sort of Venice of (laughs) Northern California and then start a center for people that were afraid to dance and to research why people were afraid to dance, you know, like (laughs) everything from these like kind of practical to totally absurd and everything in between. In the gallery, we had all this space for people to make their own map. And um, I would go around and say, this is 1.3 square miles and what are you gonna do with it? And they were like, oh, I'm building this and I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna make a new building. And I was like, okay, make sure you spend $1.6 billion. Like, okay, got it, you know, come back a few minutes later. And like, I figured out how to spend $1.6 billion. I'm going to do this, you know. And then I would say, okay, well, what are you going to do the second year? And they're like, what are you talking about? Well, every year, it, the budget is $1.6 billion. And they're like, what is this place? And I'm like, it's the Lawrence Livermore Lab. That's where they maintain the nuclear weapons stockpile. I'm like, what do they do with all this money? Why do we have to have this? You know, and like, as I would explain it, they were the ones that were mad and telling me. And it was this really great flip where instead of me going to them and saying, shouldn't you be mad about this? They're telling me like, you should be mad about this. And then it was tied in with a, a couple organizations and this event that was, they were marching on the, on the lab on the 60 year anniversary. So it was a really nice thing that kind of all coordinated coincidentally. So you were getting the people to actually convey the message you wanted to get across back to you in, in like the outrage over the kind of absurdity of, of the way that things were happening. Yeah, I mean, if you think about going back to the idea of communication, my idea was I want to communicate that this lab is here. 
all this information and history about it and then have them understand why it shouldn't be there and actually be motivated to have that happen. And all of that was communicated so much so that they were telling it back to me. And in this fun, like sort of worksheet here, do whatever you want, like creative action. You were talking about temporary utopias. Is there a value in temporary dystopias or how would that even happen? I've had conversations with people about this. I guess the first thing to say is like the temporary part of the utopia is in order to prevent it from turning into fascism. Because <laughs> whenever you right. try to have a long-term utopia, like that hasn't really worked out in our culture. So the idea is that it's this ongoing, always transforming thing. Dystopias, I think, are inherently fear-based and I would argue maybe even kind of right-wing. It's almost like a threat. If you don't change, this bad stuff is going to happen. It's negative, and I don't, I don't think it works. Um, I think actually what happens in a lot of dystopia stories is the attraction is seeing how people work together to fight for something better, which is good. But it's more of a playing out like, okay, if this scenario happened, how would I survive or me and my family? But the role of dystopia is really as a, as a thing of like conveying fear and threats. Although that works for Republicans and authority, I don't think it's a great way to organize as progressives. On the other hand, there's always exceptions. And a really great example is the Montana Meth Project, which I don't know if you know about this, but they make these horrifying billboards and commercials and they're like 30 second horror movies about methamphetamine and if you want you can like search on youtube for montana meth project and get totally freaked out saw a billboard like that in denver at once and it's just horrifying the images yeah. they put up yeah they the project started in montana and it had expanded to other states because they could like definitively say that it reduced meth use in montana and compared to states nearby that didn't have the program and like looked at ratios and stuff and that it was absolutely working. Um, and it is totally fear-based and I think it's a great thing. And you could argue that was sort of dystopian, right? But I think for progressive people to use dystopias is, I don't know how you do it without it being about inspiring fear and basically threats. You see all those video games where you're killing mass amount of zombies and you have Fallout, you have games like Fallout where you're in a nuclear fallout and you're running around and trying to save the world. Would you say that dystopias are inherently individualistic while utopias are more like a collective kind of thing? Yeah, I think you could say that. There's a few other very smart people that have analyzed dystopias. One guy I just met a couple weeks ago at Carnegie Mellon. I found out about it through Post Carbon Institute, actually. Wrote about why he thought people were attracted to dystopia stories, and really it's about a small group of people banding together and surviving. That having a sense of agency where what you did mattered and your survival was at stake. Where most in most of our lives, we don't really have that sense of agency where we, we're not presented with chances to save the world. And in a dystopia story, you usually are. The interesting thing that the guy at Carnegie Mellon, who's, I wish I could remember his name, but um, his point was that a lot of these dystopian stories, the solutions are always regressive. His examples were Independence Day and Armageddon and stuff, where the solution to the, the looming threat of Armageddon is a return to the family, male power, centralized power, and the military, and brute force. Whereas, like, I don't know if that's ever been a solution to any of our problems. What really catalyzed you to start taking on advertising in the way that you did? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I was looking at public space kind of as an artist, and I had a lot of friends who were artists who were trying to find spaces where they could do work in public. And uh, I was like, everywhere there's ads, and I know all these artists that want to do stuff. And then I found out that the advertising, a lot of what I was seeing was illegal. They had no permits, just straight up illegal. And I was like, why is, why is this happening? In a lot of really big cities, you know, up to half, sometimes more of the advertising you see is illegal and unpermitted. And it just seemed just ridiculous that it was treated so differently than graffiti was. That if you're an individual citizen writing your name on a wall, you'll, you go to jail and be fined like a huge amount of your sort of income. But if you put a billboard up there, then, you know, they'll, they'll ask you to take it down. And if you don't, then it goes further on than this thing and nothing might happen. That was really just seemed like this thing that I could get involved in and have some kind of impact. What would you say the role of higher education is in America? And how do we distinguish higher education from propaganda, which is so ubiquitous in, in most of our schools? Well, I mean, I guess if you go back to like enlightenment ideas of education that to me, are really important that education isn't about job training, it's about enlightening people. And um, a lot of our education has become about job training, even in the arts. And so what am I going to do after graduation? How am I going to get a job? And am I going to have the tools in order to enter the workplace? I think that's just a really terrible way of looking at education. So in my mind, what it is is complicated because, I don't know, you see all these shifts in education about catering to parents that are afraid about all the money that they're spending because it costs a lot to put their kids through school and seeing it as an investment that they will see a return on. Not an investment in like the broad sense, but a money investment that they will see a money return on. To me, that's not what education is for. Yeah, you invest. You invest time, you invest money, and the return on your investment is oftentimes non-financial. It could be. That's a side effect, right? But that's not why you go, and you don't think of it that way. But that's how it's thought of, and it affects the education itself and this idea of like standardization and measurable success and all that stuff. I mean, it's important that you have a way of measuring what a good education is, but uh, some of that stuff's kind of scary. But I really think it's just about liberation. I've taught high school, I've taught kids from like five years old to, co I teach at a college now. <laughs> to me, it's always about untraining them to constantly respect authority, <laughs> you know? And so like with grad students, I'll, uh, and, and undergrad students, it's trying to teach them that I'm not the person that has the answers and that the real purpose of college is when you leave that you never need school again that you can teach yourself. That's really intimidating to a lot of people because we live in this consumer society and we're so used to just like, I want to go to this branded university, sit down and consume the ideas that are given to me. And then suddenly I have this you know, stamp of approval at the end of the process that says, I got everything it needed to have a bachelor's degree in business from this branded you know, school at a university. And then I can go out into the world and you know, I, have, I have that stamp of approval. And so people aren't used to the producer mentality of education where you're actually in in the classroom, not just to consume, but to actually use that as a basis for like producing knowledge. Do you, yeah, yeah what, what do you think about that? I mean, is there any way to actually get people past this whole investment model of education? Yeah, yeah that it's, producer it's a big question. consumer idea is, is really good. And I've seen that in students where they're like, I took these classes. Why is this thing not happening? You know, or like I did every assignment 
what's the problem? I took all the pills. Now I'm supposed to get the results. But it's not like about you doing them to the letter. I had students at another school I taught at that would come up to me like, what do I have to do in this class to get an A? I'm like, awesome. This is great. Because I can tell you whatever and you'll do it, you know? So basically I would give them all these assignments that would encourage them not to care about that, you know? Like if you want to get an A in this assignment, you have to walk, you know, like down the street seven blocks, then turn left, then flip a coin. And if it's heads, go left. And if it's tails, go right. And they're like, I'm just writing everything down, you know? <laughs> basically, like I want them to go have some kind of experience in life. And so all I have to do is figure out an assignment where they go do that and then they'll do it. And then hopefully eventually you can break that pattern. I don't know that it works. But yeah, that's something I work on. But yeah, you're right. You know, like there is this, it's not only just going to the school, but like I'm doing all the assignments. Or I read the book. Well, you kind of have to also think about the book and like think about how it relates to you and whether or not you agree with it. It's not just reading all the words. Right. And do you ever discuss with your students the different models of education? Like for so long, it's always been the teacher has all the answers and he passes it down to the students and the students take down every word he says judiciously. They memorize the book. Then it's, it became the, the student and the teacher have a relationship and they go back and forth and they collaborate on, on different things. And then now with our socially connected media world where Twitter is, is ubiquitous and Facebook Facebook is everywhere where students can collaborate remotely. I mean, this podcast is a, is a remote collaboration. Right now, we're talking from three different countries. Does this model work in an educational setting as well? Can people be collaborating within a classroom? Somebody has a problem, other, people, other students can help, and the teacher kind of acts as a, a mediator or manager. Yeah. Does that yeah, model work in a, in, a, in a classroom setting? But as a teacher, I'll tell you, it's really hard. Students have been trained for decades to not do that. How do you actually start breaking them away from just that sitting there kind of passive model? I try to just set up these situations where they have to make a decision together. Today was the last day of a couple of my classes. And what I did at the beginning, this is the first time I did it, where I was like, what will you do in this class in order to pass? You're going to decide whether or not you pass the class. The first day or the second day, they wrote out this statement of what they will have done. And then today we read over and I was like, okay, Angelina, you said you were going to do this and this and that you would complete these things. And then instead of me saying, okay, and you did that and you pass, I would say, did you do it? And she'd be like, well, I did this and I changed my mind on this one thing and I did this other thing. So I don't know, you know, and I was like, well, do you pass? Do you think you pass? And she's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, and I'd write it down. And then there are other ones that didn't work as much, right? And they had to sort of own the fact that they didn't work as hard and wrestle with that. And they're probably still wrestling with it tonight and maybe probably for the days to come. To me, that was really great today because it seemed to work. You've worked as like Simba at, at a, as from The Lion King at like kids' birthday parties and like, you know, everything from theater house managers to like being various teachers at like high school level and how do you think that all those different experiences has redefined your view of education well it's made me i think like much more understanding person one of the most educational jobs i had was a as a ser service writer at a motorcycle shop so basically when you brought your motorcycle in i was the guy that you dealt with instead of the mechanics and then i, I was the go-between between the customers and the mechanics if you screw up on a motorcycle, it's really dangerous. And so one of our mechanics did something wrong that the person wasn't in any danger, but they didn't really know that. I just remember this person just screaming at me in my face, a woman. <laughs> 
yelling at me for a really long time. And it wasn't at me. She was just upset, you know? Being able to hear what she was saying and also have the distance of this isn't about me and you, this is about you and like this other thing that happened. And just to be able to like, I know, I understand why you're upset and I'm really sorry, which is good customer service, right? (laughs) That's what you do. To be able to look at someone and be like, I can't do that, but I can do this. Those kinds of things were incredibly helpful. <laughs> later so on it kind of it kind of put put some human interaction into perspective because you're being paid to do a service a specific service and you had to follow a set script of rules yeah i mean there were certain boundaries i had and so like it got me much more okay with what's possible here what can I do? And then if I can't do that, what are the things I can do? And engaging someone in a conversation that I think for most other people would be uncomfortable, but I had this sort of background of like seeing people freaked out at their kid's birthday party and I'm Simba, you know, like, and I'm supposed to entertain their kid. (laughs) And just like understanding that whole situation and my role in it. Again, like being able to see how the other parts work with some distance instead of being the parent that's freaked out. And, and like realizing that what they were mad about really had nothing to do with me. It was like, it was like a secondary thing with like how the business worked and separating myself from that so that I'm like, okay, this person needs to yell. And, uh, the thing that they're mad about is like a problem that we'll take care of eventually. And I understand why they're mad and it is a problem, but like, I don't need to get mad. I just need to wait for them to sort of be done yelling. Being able to like pull out of a situation like that and realizing that there's like kind of emotions and other things that are at play has definitely helped me in dealing with police. <laughs> Might argue one of the reasons I've never been arrested despite all the crazy stuff that I've done. You know, like I've had many encounters with police, but never been arrested. So keeping a cool head is a very important, not just in the business world, but in keeping yourself from getting arrested as well. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But like, not to say that I'm the greatest at it and I'm like always, you know, the Dalai Lama or something, but because uh, I can get angry and, and lose my head. But uh, in those kinds of situations, like realizing that like when it doesn't have anything to do with me personally, I think I can get angry when I think things are have to do with me personally. But those other kinds of situations, you know, um, there's this piece that I made that was like a, a different kind of giant sign. It was eight or nine feet by five feet and it's a big arrow and you could change the letters on it like there's one at a gas station down the street from my house to sort of like advertise that they have a big break special coming up anyway we bought one of those and uh drove it around la and pointed it at different things and i would write stuff on the face of it with the movable letters we went to the beach and i just put it out on the beach and announced that the beach was free for everyone 24 hours a day seven days a week which in california this, this is true and except I, it turns out they close at sunset and I got in trouble. So this lifeguard comes running up and it's just like, you can't have us here. You know, and I'm like, well, we're just going to take a picture and then we're going to get out of here. Is that OK? You know, had, you know, like this 10 minute conversation with this guy where eventually there was like no room for it. Just we had to get out immediately. Um, and then it became about, well, the sign is wrong. We're not open 24 seven. We close at sunset, so you can't say that. (laughs) Then him saying, okay, look, I'm going to go down here. I'll be back in 15 minutes, and you better be gone. And we're like, got it. So those kinds of things have been helpful, just as one example. And what happens when you have negative reactions to your work like that? Like, Do you have some other examples where you did something that was kind of disruptive, and then 
you know, police were like, oh, you got to stop that. Or Yeah. So I used to organize these art galleries on the street. So we'd find like an abandoned wall and then get a bunch of people to bring artwork or organize it where the people would submit stuff from all over the world. And then we'd hang it up on this wall and, and like have a show and just use the space, you know, in a different way. And um, every once in a while, the police would come and we'd be like, well, first of all, everyone was like, get Steve. He's in charge, which I really didn't appreciate. So I would come up and, I, and I'd say, hi, you know, like, what, what, what can we do? And um, I would always like refer to the cops and me as we, which just sort of changes the the tone of everything, you know, in like this really subtle way. And they'd say, well, you know, we got a complaint that there's all these people on the sidewalk. And I'd say, oh, should we like, should we try to move people out of the way or like keep a clear path? And they're like, well, you know, I guess you could do that. <laughs> it's like, okay, what, <laughs> why are these guys here, you know? And they're like, well, uh, we get these calls for these complaints and I'm not even sure why someone would complain about this. Seems great. The police well, would say that? The police said that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, this is like San Francisco cops or sometimes you catch some good ones. But um, I was like, OK, well, you know, I could ask people, make sure there's enough room for somebody to get through on a wheelchair or something. And they're like, yeah, yeah, sure. OK. You know, and then they're like, all right, we'll see you later. And that was it. But like if they came and I was antagonistic at all, that, that outcome would not have been the same. Police like sort of inherently threatening or scary. They kind of react off of how you react to them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you found that being in charge in situations like this kind of lets you set the tone for the for the whole event? Because you know, if you if you let somebody else be in charge, it kind of allows them to influence it with their their energy. So being in charge kind of lets you put your spin on it in that way. Yeah. Um, sometimes I just try to avoid the whole being in charge thing because sometimes it's nice when no one's in charge and then, then there's no one to turn to when they're like, who's in charge? You know, it's like, I don't know. <laughs> We're just here. But, you've also had a lot of jobs where you've, where you've probably been in charge and where you've been the one not in charge and following along. Which, which role are you more, most comfortable in? I don't know. I like, like, I, I think I like sidestepping that whole thing for the most part, you know? I mean, you're never in charge, right? Like, there's always, like, someone above you. So I've been, like, a middle manager. Then you're just, like, looking for the people to be like, look, okay, this guy said that I have to tell you this. Like, now we have to do this. That's different. And all you want is for them to just be like, sure, okay, we'll do it. And so there's other times where, like, realizing that that's what needs to happen, it's like, all right, tell me what you want me to do. And then they'll say that. I'm like, okay, we're going to do that. And then they're like, all right, great. You know, and then they just walk away. And, you know, if they come out in 10 minutes, like, you have to do it. Like, okay, yeah, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're doing it. And like, they just need to hear yes, you know, and then like, they've done their job and they can, they're okay. And, you know, you can kind of continue for a little while. What do you think it's like being a police officer having to put up with, you know, events like that, because I'm seeing the reaction of police officers to the Occupy movement. And I hear stories of like incredible examples where police are cooperating and helping. And then you have images like the, you know, pepper spray cop that's just absolutely yeah. horrifying and ridiculous. Police officers are people too. There's all types. But, you know, what have your experiences kind of given you in terms of insight into wh what they have to do and, and, experience. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I was in a job where I arrested people. 
I arrested shoplifters at the Stanford University bookstore. I was never like a student there, but I did, I worked at the bookstore, which is like a four floor bookstore that sold computers and clothing and had a cafe and all this stuff. And I was an undercover security agent and arrested people. It was a kind of unusual department in that they were like really concerned with taking care of people <laughs> and, and like providing them an opportunity to sort of reflect on what they had done and why, rather than just like, you know, being cruel or something, right? Um, so you didn't so tackle them? If they ran, we, we had to. Uh, or actually, no, we didn't because we weren't cops. And so if they ran, we just would sort of follow them and keep track of them while we called the cops. Because you never know why someone's running. It could be like we literally arrested wanted felons occasionally. And so you had to be very careful. It was there were parts of it that were dangerous every once in a while. But um, but you saw people like the side of like their humanity where they will. We never arrested somebody by mistake. If we thought there was a chance that they hadn't done something wrong, we let them go. Like never, they never saw us. But if we had video of like everything and we knew absolutely for sure that this person took something, we had to go and get it back. So it's like really rare kind of position in life where you are right and the other person is wrong and they kind of know it. Oftentimes they're like super self-conscious and as soon as you like flash a badge, you just see this like look of defeat of like, oh no, like I'm totally caught. And like mo for most people, like 75% of people, like that's when it ended and they just were like, that was it. You know, like we told them where to go and we'll ask them questions, did our report and like they were pretty compliant, you know. What about that other 25%, what were they like? Well, you flash the badge and then they look over their shoulder <laughs> to see if they can run. And then there's another person with another badge over their shoulder because we don't, we'd, We'd do it all in pairs and like plan it out and stuff, and and then they would then they'd see the shoulders drop, um, and then there's like rare people that would you have to be really careful because they might throw a punch or something. But anyway, most people, those are exceptions, but most people like you see them at this kind of really vulnerable moment. And I came to realize that shoplifting was like we'd never really arrested somebody that was like starving and stealing food so they could survive and feed their children that were living in the streets. It was like people that had come up with all kinds of justifications, the same justifications that I came up with when I was shoplifter when I was younger, you know, about why they were doing it, why maybe it was okay that the stuff cost too much, that the, the store had ripped them off or that they needed it for something. You know, like they had all these different kinds of reasons. And like over and over again, you just see the sort of same behavior with different people. And it was like really kind of incredible way of experiencing like this level of humanity in a way. It's hard to explain. You mean in the way that they were, they would rationalize the behavior in any way? Yeah, you'd see these people basically at really sad moments. It's hard for me to not see shoplifting as really sad now because when we would interview them, we we're like, "Why did you decide to do this today?" Because we needed to kind of that was part of what we needed for our report. Then this other stuff would come out about their life, and you realize that like there was some amount of control or excitement or something that they were looking for that they weren't getting out of their life. And so you see all these people at this sort of sad moment of where they were caught. Our department was really good about not taking advantage of that. And like at that moment saying, OK, well, maybe this is a time this can be a turning point for you. Like maybe you can think about why you did this today and make some changes. And we were always trying to get them to leave being like, yeah, you know what? Today is the day I'm going to change my life, you know. And I guess that's what you get in a uh, loss prevention department in, you know, Northern California. I don't know what they're like anywhere else. <laughs> Did some of the people that you worked with have like psychology degrees and they're there for doing some social work or something like that? I mean, you no, know, they're they were, help, trying to help people. 
they were just really cool people like that that had done that job for a long time and worked with other people that they were, I think were probably disgusted by you know <laughs> like if I'm in charge I'm not doing that and uh, and they were in charge and they did it a different way so anyway it's, I guess it's maybe in a way giving me insights into cops I know cops are people I've told this to friends of mine and no one understands but like you know the like videos recently of like at UC Berkeley of kids getting beat up with clubs and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I could totally see myself doing that. I know I'm gonna sound crazy, right? But like if you gave me if you if I was a cop in a in a department like that and you gave me pepper spray and a riot gear, so like I know I'm kind of protected. Yeah, I got armor, and and if I get hurt, I'm like I get paid while I at home, and like maybe I'm a hero or something, you know. And I've got this club and pepper spray. And like my job is get these people out of here. And like I don't really care, right? Like I, my job is get people out of here and they're not doing it. And we've told them to do it and the day is long and like whatever. And then eventually something happens where I, it's kind of okay for me to pull this club out or no one's stopping me. Or like I've been told if you need to, you can use force and I get to hit somebody. Like, and I'm right and I'm okay. That's okay to do. It's dark, but like I could see doing that, you know? Like I could see, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think I could actually ever do that, but I could see it. Because it's your job or because you just... Because of everything that goes into that job, the training, like that you're armed in that way, right? Like, and I, I was talking about this with uh, Aaron Hughes, who's a Iraq Veterans Against the War guy, who, you know, also was armed and like, if you talk to him, I'm sure could tell you things that he did that he you know, wonders why he did them. A lot of those guys do. And his thing is like, who is arming these people? Like, who is giving them those tools, right? I think that's part of it. It's like, you've got this club and you've got this pepper spray and like, why would you have it if you're not supposed to use it? And also, I would think that being campus police force, you are probably walking around all day and probably feeling, you know, underappreciated or like, oh, you know, these bratty kids, you know, I got to yeah. look after them all the time. And it's like, if someone gives you that, that nightstick, it's like, eh, you know, maybe this is finally my time to take some of those feelings out. But the thing is, is like, they've been told that they can do that. And they've been given those tools. Like I said, I might sound crazy, but I can relate. No, no, you're not crazy at all. It's, it's a lot like that Stanford prison experiment by Philip Zimbardo. Have you heard of that before? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where they, they set up some people as the jailers and some people as the prison inmates and they told them that they had to act in these roles and people did act in these roles and they acted yeah. very, very strongly because they were told to do that. It kind of relates back to what you're saying about how people would just kind of give up when you told them that they, you caught them stealing something. They just kind of conform to these roles because they feel that this is the way you do it in, in a cultural society. How much do you think of that as just wrote into being human or how much of that is innate and in, in genetic inside of people? Probably mostly cultural, you know? And I guess that, that relates to all this stuff. Is like the culture of that job where I was arresting people, our department had a different culture than most police forces, maybe. And not that I was a cop, but, you know, like, for example, or other loss prevention departments and, you know, your average department store, you know, there's not the same culture. And when you introduce, like, weapons, when people are patrolling a campus, that creates a culture, too. Every culture has sort of what's right and wrong. And when they're acting within the norms of, like, what's okay in that culture, all right, this makes sense to me, but, like, why would you be given that tool if you're not supposed to use it? Why would you have pepper spray if you're not supposed to use pepper spray? Why did they give you pepper spray that day? We 
If a deal seems too good to be true, it probably is. It's stolen, or it's damaged, or it's both. There's a thriving market for shoplifted goods these days, and a depressed economy is tempting even more people into desperate choices. Shoplifting has turned pro, and it's a big problem. It's startling the number of high-ranking Obama officials who have spun through the revolving door between the White House and the sacred halls of investment banking. President Obama may call them fat cats and stir the rabble against them with populist rhetoric when it serves his purpose. But after the fiscal fiasco, he allowed the culprits to escape virtually scot-free. And when he's here in New York, he dines with them frequently and eagerly accepts their big contributions. Obama's administration has also provided the banks with billions of low-cost dollars they use for high-yielding investments to make big profits. The largest banks are actually bigger than they were when he took office and earned more in the first two and a half years of his term than they did during the entire eight years of the Bush administration. President Obama's new best friend, according to the New York Times, is Robert Wolf. They play golf, basketball, and they talk economics when Wolf is not raising money for the president's re-election campaign. Now, just who is Robert Wolf? Well, he's top dog at the U.S. branch of the giant Swiss bank UBS, the very bank that helped rich Americans evade taxes. Here, Senator Carl Levin describes some of the tricks used by UBS. Swiss bankers aided and abetted violations of U.S. tax law by traveling to this country with client code names, encrypted computers, counter surveillance training, and all the rest of it to enable U.S. residents to hide assets and money in Swiss accounts. One man who has strong views on all these cozy ties between Wall Street and Washington is David Stockman. In the 1970s, he was a young Republican congressman from Michigan and an early proponent of supply-side economics. Some call it trickle-down. It was the centerpiece of Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign for president. There is enough fat in the government in Washington that if it was rendered and made into soap, it would wash the world. Once in the Oval Office, President Reagan made David Stockman his budget director. When President Reagan gave me this job, he pointed to that budget which is some thousands and thousands of pages long, and he said, go through it from top to bottom with a fine-tooth comb, and unless you can find a persuasive demonstration why funds must be spent, cut those budgets. He then took his economic expertise to Wall Street and became an investment banker. Thirty years later, he's writing a new book with the working title, The Triumph of Crony Capitalism. I sat down with him to talk about how politics and high finance have turned our economy into a private club for members only. We have neither capitalism or democracy. Uh, we have we some have? kind of, we have crony capitalism, which is the worst, it's not a free market. Uh, there isn't uh, risk-taking in the sense that if you succeed, you keep your rewards. If you fail, uh, you accept the consequences. Uh, look what the uh, bailout was in, in 2008. Uh, there was clearly reckless speculative behavior going on for years on Wall Street. And then when the consequence finally came, uh, the uh, Treasury uh, stepped in and the Fed stepped in. Everything was bailed out and the game was restarted. And I think that was a huge mistake. When you look at what came out of uh, 2008, the only thing that came out of 2008 was a stabilization 
of these giant uh, Wall Street banks. Uh, nothing came out of 208 that really helped uh, Main Street. Nothing came out of 208 that addressed our fundamental problems that we've lost a huge uh, swath of our middle class jobs. Nothing came out of 208 that made financial discipline or fiscal discipline possible. It was uh, justified as sort of expediency, we need to do this, we need to stop the cont contagion, but it wasn't thought through as to what the long-term implications of this would be. I think there was a lot of panic going on in the Treasury Department. I call it the Blackberry Panic. They were all looking at their Blackberries. They could see the price of Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley dropping by the hour. When you saw that President Obama had appointed Jeffrey Immel as the head of his Council on Jobs and Competitiveness, what went through your mind? Well, I was in the middle of being very disgusted with what my own Republican Party had done and what Bush had done and the Paulson Treasury. And then when I saw this, I got the title for my book, <laughs> The Triumph of Crony Capitalism. And I am so proud and pleased that Jeff has agreed to chair this panel, my Council on Jobs and Competitiveness, because we think GE has something to teach businesses all across America. The worst abuser of crony capitalism, GE, who came in and begged for this bailout to head his jobs council, when obviously GE's international corporation, they've been shifting jobs uh, offshore for decades. Then it becomes so uh, obvious that uh, uh, we have a new kind of system and that we have a real crisis. And I think nothing is really going to uh, change until we get money out of politics and do some radical things uh, to change the way elections are financed and the way the process is influenced by organized money. If we don't address that, uh, then crony capitalism is here for the duration. This is The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Steve Lambert about redefining jobs and education. One of the things that I heard from some friends that I went through my undergrad with and then they graduated and got, you know, like real world jobs and everything, and they were telling me the one thing that their education never mentioned or prepared them for was the culture of the job that they went into. And so they would go into the workplace, you know, you go and you get your degree or, or whatever, and then you look for these specific jobs that, you know, you're supposed to be qualified for with that degree. And then you go into the office place and then the culture of that office place has so much to do with your experience and the way that you move your profession along and whether you're interested in it or not or, or anything. And so now that you're a professor, do you think there's any way to kind of bring insights into the classes that you teach about the role that culture plays and all that? Yeah. And, you know, it's hard even there's like those power kind of relationships in a classroom, too, that you got to fight against. And like students wanting to just be students and told what to do. Those are other things you kind of have to get over. So part of it is through modeling. You know, like I was saying with the cop, it's like, what are we going to do? And in the classroom saying, like, what do you, what should we make this class? Like, what should this class be? So that you administering 
information you're facilitating it you know right and we have this whole culture you know of that's so structured and then building this alternative to the economic system we have right now or do we need to even build that alternative but how can we even get out there and build an alternative when we're so used to just receiving things from the top or you know receiving things from the professor at the front of the room or receiving things from you know the paycheck from our employer right as our motivation what prospects do you think there are for a culture like that, that's so ingrained in just receiving and instead of producing. Is this something that needs to change? Maybe I kind of disagree with the premise, you know, like, I think there's huge parts of our culture that don't work that way. And that that kind of thing has to be in, applied and enforced. That's the unnatural part that's brought in. Maybe that's the like, utopian side of me talking, but, um, you know, you, you have to train a cop to act that way. Um, and give them those weapons. And without that, then maybe they would do something else, you know? I mean, I guess uh, there's all kinds of training. You kind of have to train kids to be kind, too. But, you know, I don't, I don't think, like, that most of our everyday lives are transactional. You do a lot of things just because, you know, like, spend a little bit more time talking to a friend, not because they're paying you, you know, <laughs> or that you, like, think that you can leverage that somehow, but you need to be there for that person at that time. So the prospects are good because that's sort of, it's a big part of who we are. But I think that what we imagine to be possible sometimes can be really limiting. And going off of that, you know, what we imagine to be possible, you know, what are some ways that you see artists in starting to take that on and starting to help people what imagines how to reform economically or change capitalism or design what comes next. I think that's one of the things that art does really well, which is like provide perspective and pers provide a vision, you know? So there can be like the way that art critiques culture, but it can also, instead of like looking at things and pointing out what's wrong or ridiculous, sometimes that needs to be done, but also can provide like another idea of the way the world can be. That's like completely outside of what we could imagine. That's where I think it can get really exciting about like opening a window for people to see other ways that the world can work. The best example from like my work, I think it was pretty amazing group effort and the way that it actually turned out was the New York Times special edition. The idea was just to show people for like this moment, like another way that the world could work, you know, like here you're transported to this other sort of alternative universe and to see what that would be like. And then kind of, look at the world that we're in and say, why not? It's very important for people to have that experience, to see that alternate reality that somebody else has jumped up in their own mind. But a lot of people are so so ingrained in the current system and just plain lazy to actually enact something on that large of a scale and that much effort that's needed to change to make the changes is, is beyond a lot of people. How do we get over this kind of malaise in human nature that just kind of lets people accept the things that just happen every day and, and create something new? Where, where does that initiative come from? So there's two things there, I think. One is that um, like everyday reality is actually pretty oppressive. It's hard to imagine like the whole traffic system working differently. For example, when every time you step out of your house and look at the streets, it's like the same way every day. And it's always been that way, you know, as long as you can remember. So reality in a way can be 
another way of like limiting what we see as possible because you don't see those alternatives. And sometimes that can be what's really exciting or amazing about visiting another country. You know, I, we were in Amsterdam in December and like just the way that bicycles dominate the traffic system there, you know, and like you go someplace and there's so many bicycles parked out front, you can't even count them in stark contrast to where I live now. And it's like, okay, well, this is working here. And how could it work another way? And how do you show someone who's never seen that before or explain like, yeah, no, no, this will work. This will work, right? And if it doesn't exist anywhere in the world, it's really hard to convince people that, that uh, it could work that way. And so art, again, is a way of sort of bringing that imagined place and, and, to, and to create a representation of it, you know, or a, some kind of vision. As far as like the reasons people don't do this is like I always come back to the idea of agency an agency in sociology is like basically the feeling that what you do matters. And if you do something, there will be an effect. You know, this is like the reason people don't vote. It's because they don't see how what they are doing will have any effect on their life or that action will have much effect on their life. And it's hard to show them that it will, you know, like that there's a direct connection. People won't recycle uh, in a building where they're not sure that the stuff isn't just collected down in the basement and put in the same container. Because it's like, well, why, sh why should we even bother? They're not gonna do it downstairs. The fact that the people downstairs are dumping everything together takes away their sense of agency. So there's all kinds of examples of this, but I, I don't think that it's necessarily that people are lazy, but actually that they're smart and that they, that they might see something or not see uh, a clear way that what they're doing will even matter. There's plenty of other things in their life that they can do that, that do matter, whether that's spending time with their family or even just entertaining themselves. If I watch TV tonight, I will laugh and I have control over that and I know the outcome. It's not that they're lazy per se, it's just that they're optimizing activities over which they have control of, is what you're saying. Like that's what's awesome about video games. You're the player, you control the world, you can turn it off and on, you can go wherever you want. If you get better at it, you will win. And there aren't as many opportunities like that in life. So as activists, like I think some of the things that to think about are like, how do you give people agency? Not only in like showing that through the politics that you're trying to change, that there'll be an outcome, but in, in the activism, like that what they do in that action actually matters or their opinions about how it should go are considered and might change the outcome of it. Those are ways of drawing people away from other things that they do have control over or have an impact on and into things that might have a larger impact or a more broad impact. Yeah, and, and that's always the problem I've had with so many actions that I've been a part of is it's it's like maybe a group of people will go and get arrested at like a corporate headquarters or something. But then, you know, the whole idea of agency, it's like what difference did that really make? And, and you yeah. know, do you think there's a way to actually develop a sense of, of agency in people and in a feeling that they're making a difference, whether that's like, well, there's, you know, art there's through the internet. Things. The being arrested in front of the building and like what ma what did it matter that we got arrested, which is one, but also like that your role in the protest is basically as a body. We need as many bodies as we can so we can say this many people got arrested or like to fill this space in a march, you're like basically the equivalent of like two by two feet or something, right? Like <laughs> right. you fill that much space and that's your role. 
I mean, what's exciting about some of the recent Occupy stuff and, and when people bring creativity to protests is that they're doing more than just, you know, occupying, or uh, I shouldn't say that, but doing more than taking up space, actually bringing something else to it that might matter. And, and I think being tactical, too, and thinking about, like, is getting arrested here going to, to actually have the impact that we want? And what, how can we be most effective in getting to whatever goal we want to get to? Well, we've seen pretty recently an example of how the internet's starting to do that same kind of thing with that uh, IPPA internet censorship bill that's was has been tabled by Congress. A lot of websites went offline in protest of that, and people all over the world kind of saw it, and it was a lot of awareness drawn towards this. And mm-hmm. you know, there was some actual action taken by the internet community that effectively slowed down or probably tabled this bill. Yeah. So that that's that's a very encouraging kind of thing as well. And people don't really have to do very much for that. Agreed. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your capitalism sign project. That's the one where people can vote, yes or no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a 20-foot long by 9-foot tall aluminum sign that says capitalism works for me and it's in the style of sort of like a you know, like a roller coaster um, or like a county fair or something like that, you know, like a, a ride. Um, and it says capitalism works for me and it has a scoreboard on it on either side. So true and false. And then there's a podium out front and you can press a button for true or press a button for false and the numbers will change. And so basically it keeps, keeps score about whether or not capitalism is working for people in the, in the area around the sign. We have to ask if it's working. Is it working for them? It's very split. A lot of times will end up like pretty even, surprisingly. There are a lot of qualified yeses because they can really only choose yes or no, which is part of the trick. People like, you know, there was a guy in a union who voted yes. He's like, yeah, it works for me because I'm in the union, which you could argue whether or not that's true. But for him, he felt like it worked. Um, or people that say, yeah, but, you know, it didn't always work for me or yes, but I'm not sure about this or that, you know, so and there's a good portion of qualified yeses. And then you get bankers and stuff that are just slam down yes and keep walking. <laughs> They're like jumping on the yes button. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing with the sign? Are, are you moving it around or? Yeah, so it's touring the country. It started in Cleveland and then moved to, now it's in Boston. It just opened up at the Decord of a Biennial last Friday. We're, we're going to take it around in the city of Boston around March and April. Then it goes to Hartford, Connecticut, which is the insurance capital of the country. After that, it goes to, I think, Birmingham, Alabama. Trying to get it to New York between there. We'll see. Uh, Then Santa Fe, San Diego, Los Angeles, and hopefully some other cities as we go along. So you'll know where capitalism is working and where it isn't. Yeah, maybe. Very scientifically. (laughs) Well, it's funny. People get really like, they're like, well, you know, are you recording the vote or is there, you know, and it's really important that we know the numbers. And it's like, well, actually, it's, that's like the least important part. The really amazing thing is like when people will walk up and like they think they have an answer and then they're like, well, wait, what do you mean works? Or like, what, what do you mean by capitalism? Like nationally or like, and what do you mean for me? <laughs> you know, and so that whole thought process where they see a simple question and and then it becomes really complicated and there's a lot of thought that happens around it and that's a moment for discussion and reflection and all this good stuff. Um, that's the part that's important. So um, I find, you know, like I'm always like kind of struck when people are like, well, what's the score? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I could look it up, but, you know, it's 
whatever. And it's not like it's a binding vote. People are like, well, what are you going to do with the numbers at the end? I'm like, I'm going to seal it up and send it to the president and then everything will change. You know? I'm going to bury it in a time capsule. And we'll look back <laughs> hundred years from now and see where capitalism was. Yeah, I mean, I'm making a book that will have all the um, cities that it is in locations and I'm shooting photos of people I've done interviews with and then getting a quick uh, statement from them. So there'll be a book of all the different places and the people that I talk to and some of some of their stories. What are they saying about the sign? Is it changing their lives? Are they reflecting for the first time on their economic system and it's just bending their, their worldview? They, well, they end up having thoughts that they wouldn't otherwise. There are discussions that happen around the sign with people, which is kind of nice. Also, you know, sometimes just in talking to them, they'll start by saying yes and then realize they mean no. My favorite story is uh, there was a doctor. He did complex endoscopies, which means like going into people's bodies with a camera. And he's like, it's really amazing what the healthcare system and capitalism, basically like all the money that gets put into it has allowed me to do as a doctor, like stuff that I wouldn't normally be able to do. But then as we started talking, he's like, and actually like capitalism makes this necessary because people eat so poorly. I probably wouldn't need to do a lot of this stuff if people took care of themselves and ate well and spent time with their families and had time to cook at home. It's like a lot of the stuff I have to do is caused by fast food. And so he was like, yeah, it works for me, you know, but it's like not working for my patients, basically. You know, there were like a lot of layers and a, a lot of sort of dark humor that went into this conversation. Yeah, it's interesting. I work with a lot of doctors. I shoot a lot of video of doctors speaking and I got a chance to, to hear what they have to say about diseases, lots of diseases. Things always kind of circle back to diet. Everything revolves around what people eat. And it's incredible the amount of medicine that people put into their bodies just to try to cure themselves from you know eating those hot dogs. And you know what? Outside the hospital where I work, there's two hot dog stands and the guy sells out every single day. That is a capitalist working hard right there. There's a hospital here in Boston I went to and there's a Dunkin' Donuts franchise in the hospital. Yeah, and the cafeteria in this place serves like heavy meats and you know, we're like fatty sausages and ridiculous food. I mean, seriously, come on. Well, you're in a hospital. Maybe we can close out, uh, Steve, by first of all asking, you know, what kind of hope you have in terms of the Occupy movement and, and the future. And you can use this opportunity just to kind of spill out anything that's been exciting you or uh, that you've been thinking about a lot recently. And then tell us about uh, some of your upcoming projects. I, thought, I just feel like either way, you got to work. Whether or not you think it might turn out or not, it's like, what are you going to do? Just sit around and let it get worse? You know, there's some way that it can be better. And, uh, you know, depending on if your view of if there's permanent damage to the climate, for example, or um, it's preventable or, you know, or somewhere in between, it's like, all right, well, I might be wrong about that. And if we're wrong, it's not going to hurt to try to do something in the meantime. Um, and if it's starting to be bad, it's not going to hurt to try to do something now. And if we're in that stage of like before we've done permanent damage, which I don't know that there's many people that believe anymore, but, you know, it's going to, of course, then it will help to um, to try to change things. So that's that's kind of my point is like hopeful, not hopeful. What choice do we have? You try to make no, we, a, do, we definitely yeah. have a choice. There's definitely a choice. I'm teaching a new class at the museum school about called Truth and Comedy that's about using humor to talk about difficult things. And like the more I've been preparing, the more obsessed I've gotten with this idea that like if you're using humor, you cannot lose a debate as long as you're funnier, right? Like 
um, you have this sort of slipperiness and ability to like, you know, like kind of like Joker or trickster character, like can, can kind of shift roles and make a joke or be serious. And, um, you're kind of at an advantage then. And I've used this a lot in different kind of activist work, but like really studying different comedians and pranks and things like that that have happened in the past is always just gives me this boost, you know. The only way I can describe it is like unbeatable, you know. Like you can't seriously as like a government or the media compete with that. And so I think that's that's a really exciting way that people with you know, that are dealing with something that's more powerful can always have an advantage. And any examples like throughout history that really stand out for you? You know, like a really simple, uh, obvious one is The Daily Show, you know, or like I, a few years ago when John, they had Jon Stewart on Crossfire or something like that. Yeah, I, I remember that. They're trying to debate him. You know, he, he can make a serious point and then make a joke and it's like, you can't touch him then, you know, because he's got this way of sort of slipping in and out of the argument. You're not stuck in the argument. You know what I mean? Like, you don't have to compete with the points that are being made. You can kind of, like, go outside them and sidestep them, make different tracks around the debate or the ideas or the what's being talked about through through comedy and humor, you know? There's all these examples, too, of uh, there's this movie that's coming out that I've been reading about called Juan of the Dead, that is a Cuban uh, zombie movie. They, in it, they make all these jokes about the Cuban government, the U.S. government. Um, but, you know, like, no one takes it seriously because it's a sort of funny zombie movie. But because no one takes it seriously, they're able to do all this kind of serious stuff, you know, talk about all these serious things. Um, so those are, like, just a couple examples that I think are, like, really smart, you know. A lot of times with activists, it's like, you're dealing with such serious issues that you feel like you yourself have to be serious, but there's a way of kind of being sincere, funny, and serious all at the same time. It's not easy, but there's so many advantages to it, you know? Well, I have the capitalism sign that's touring around. It's in New England until through the all the spring. I'll be a resident artist in Birmingham, Alabama this year during the summer. I'll be around there a little bit. And in Santa Fe, I'll be in Santa Fe for a month doing an artist residency there. So I have other kinds of projects coming up. Everything's on my website, visitsteve.com. closes out our conversation with Steve Lambert about jobs, his capitalism sign, about utopias. So in thinking about utopias, I'm wondering what you think, Seth, about what Steve Lambert was saying about how, in his view, 
utopias had to be temporary because if not, they turn into more of a fascist thing. In thinking about a paradise situation, I mean, what kind of things do we want when you think about paradise or he- like a heaven kind of, in quotes, a heaven kind of place? Where What kind of place would that be? It's hard to think about because humans inherently have so many problems to deal with and so many issues that face them. It's kind of hard to picture a place like that. It makes you wonder if we can refine utopia to mean something that can fit within the ecological limits that we face because our notions of utopia have been about infinite energy, electricity that's too cheap to meter, flying to space, colonizing other planets, and with NASA going bankrupt and with more and more of government actions being consumed with debt crises, austerity, especially in Europe, but it's only just starting in the United States flying to another planet is looking like less and less of an option. Unless, of course, Newt Gingrich is elected and we get a moon base. A moon base would be amazing. If the human race had other imperatives, you know, instead of trying to fight over the last drops of oil, instead of trying to kill each other, instead of trying to rule each other through whatever possible means, through violence, through economic slavery, through all the means that we do enslave one another, we could go to the moon. We could explore the universe. We could go off and explore the oceans. I mean, there's so much to, to be explored in our world. And instead, we fight over the stupid, stupid little things that make life horrible for one another. Could we go to other planets? I don't know if there's enough resources to support something like that. And I also wonder if maybe there could have been if instead of going to the moon and investing so much money in a space program, we'd instead invested in marine exploration because we know more about space than we do our own oceans. And imagine if we'd started exploring the oceans and found bioorganisms that are able to be adapted to run our electronics, you know, that were batteries. Mm -hmm. And then those sort of things could give us enough biological knowledge that we could actually, you know, grow these biological organisms that could allow to fly to other planets and then we could have done exploration. They say in Star Trek that space is the final frontier, but three quarters of our planet are oceans and we don't even know anything about those things. We we don't know anything that goes on the deep, deep depths of the oceans. Nobody explores those places. But we think we're getting off track here, Justin. I think (laughs) (laughs) we need to concentrate on what Steve said and how he's using art to kind of influence the conversation. Yeah, and so Steve was talking about making a piece of art for one person person. And in a lot of ways, that's what we're trying to do in making these podcasts is because everybody's going to be coming at this information from a different angle. We really want to tailor these podcasts so that if you have one topic that you really think can resonate with the people in your life, we can make something like that around either a person or an idea because everyone is at a different place. You know, when Seth, you talk to the people in your life, all of them are at different places. And so it really requires requires you to know who is at what place and what kind of information resonates with them and how to influence their way of thinking by making that connection. Sure, and I get all kinds of different reactions. But the thing I like about the the format of podcasting is that it's such a mass media message, but you consume it on such a personal level. 
usually listening to it on your headphones by yourself or on the radio in the car while driving or something to that effect. It makes it a lot more personal conversation. It's like I and Justin, we're both just talking to you. But the most important thing is being able to support people as they make changes in their life to adapt to all of these things that we talk about on our show and finding out how to get to people at different stages in that process. So Steve was talking about what it's like to be a professor and how he tries to change the ways that his students act. And so he was saying that he loves it when he gets a student who's just only ever shot for the A and just does everything that the teacher asks for, because then he'll send them out onto the street and just say, all right, you have to take a left. And then, you know, you have to flip a coin in whatever direction that says you turn right or left and, and all those things. And it seems kind of silly, but what he's trying to do is to break down what those people are used to in terms of learning and trying to get them so that they're intrinsically motivated to learn. Because everything about our educational system, especially at a high school level, but even a lot of the college university level learning is so extrinsically motivated. You know, you're shooting for that grade, you're shooting for getting the approval of that instructor. And the only way you're ever going to learn something that's real and that's meaningful is if you're intrinsically motivated, if you feel the burn and the desire to move towards learning something like that. And do you think that it's possible to start bringing people more in line with intrinsic motivations for learning? And if so, uh, would completely whole disciplines start falling away? Definitely think whole disciplines would start falling away because a lot of times people go to university for the sole reason of getting that degree so they can make more money. And money is a huge motivator for so many different people. I was talking to my father today who's been working for about 40 years and he really just doesn't resonate with his job anymore. He's His motivation that had him enter into the IT world has just gone away and it's no longer fun for him and he just really wants to get away from it. But he can't because he's so addicted to money and making money is such an intrinsically important part of his life. And for a lot of people, that is the way that, we, we, that we've been brought up. We've gone to university and we've gone to all of our education. Our parents have told us that we have to go to school so that we can get an amazing job that we so we can make lots of money and we can continue on like all the things that go along with the American dream. But when you start breaking that down, you say, well, you don't really have to have that. And you can't even have it now. You can't even have that American dream because of all these factors that are happening. What comes to the surface is what you are as a person, what you really feel passionate about, what you really want to do. And when you figure that thing out and then you get to follow that dream, it makes a difference. And if you have a whole country doing that and following their intrinsic values, you're going to have a very different place. One of the interesting things about being able to take Richard Heinberg to the city of Vancouver was the discussion that we were having afterwards. And the city was saying, you know, what can we really do to help deal with this situation where the social fabric's being torn because of austerity and because of debt? You know, people have this expectation here in Canada and in the United States that I need to work towards getting a house. I need to work towards getting those things. And so people get into unmanageable personal financial situations because they have such desire. And so what they were saying is that it's really a battle of expectations and it's a change in expectations. But I think that one of the messages we're trying to get across by doing this podcast is that the future, even though we're battling some unbelievably difficult trends, it doesn't have to be worse. It only just has to not meet our expectations. So that just means changing our expectations. And so like you were just saying a moment ago, Seth, that people can start 
start to find new definitions, new things to work towards. And those can actually be more fulfilling than being addicted to money, than getting what Dmitry Orlov calls the iron triangle of the job, the car, and the house. Because you need the job to support the house. You need the car to get to the job. And you need the house because you need to live somewhere that's nearby enough. And so all three of them are linked together. And so the more you can break that down, you get outside of the debt pyramid, you get outside of the addiction to money, and you don't have to fight that addiction to money because the future is going to have a lot less money than it does now in one way or another. And so that means that if you have a lot of outstanding obligations, it's going to be harder and harder to meet those as the jobs are harder to come by. And for people who do have jobs right now, it might seem like the world really hasn't changed that much in some ways. Prices might be slowly creeping up on food and other things and gasoline prices might be slowly creeping up. But the difference is now if you lose your job, the chances of getting another one that pays just as well are severely diminished. And there's a lot of people who have lost their jobs and now they're just kicked into what's becoming an American permanent underclass where it's just, you know, people who can't afford to live. And in Seattle, they just recently changed the laws in one of the parking decks to allow 12 spots for people to park their cars and live in there. So it's cheaper. Yeah, it's cheaper to pay the rent if all you got to pay is the parking garage fee than if you're paying rent to live in an apartment or a house. Justin, what kind of advice would you give to people who are are in that system and who have the jobs and are still making a decent salary? And, you know, they see these things coming on the horizon. They see all this economic turmoil going on in Europe. They see all these financial mishaps going on around them. What would you say to these people? What should they be doing right now? What should they be thinking? Where should they be seeing themselves in five years if they're not going to be at their job anymore? Well, it's not to say that they won't be at their job anymore, but I think it's important to do two things right now. And the first of all is building social capital. That's the number one thing. So that's why people like Richard Heinberg say, build local resilience. That's what he's really getting at. He's saying build social capital. Because in looking at historically disasters around the world, the one thing that allows some communities to be able to recover while some communities suffer for you know a decade or more is the fact that they have social capital. And social capital is just the amalgamum of all the people in the sense of community, the relationships that people have, usually outside of the monetary economy. So you can look at villages that were affected by a tsunami and the ones that have complex barter networks around their fishing economy are going to do better than the ones who are used to making products and selling them on the global market because all those transactions have been more and more monetized, more and more of their relationships have been part of the monetary economy. And so building social capital is the number one thing. But two, if you have an inflow of money, it's you using your money to decouple your dependence on money. So it's using things to buy supplies, you know, like garden supplies or stocks of seeds or equipment you may need in this future when suddenly money is a lot more difficult to get. And in five or 10 years, the idea of manufacturing a piece of complex machinery is a lot less likely or much more expensive to get. And so then you can buy it now and not have to worry about it. Photovoltaic solar panels don't make a lot of sense in the 
monetary economy. You might say, oh man, it's going to take a 20-year payback period. But if in 10 years there's no more manufacturing of photovoltaic solar panels because the industrial economy and infrastructure isn't operating, that payback period doesn't matter. You have electricity, and that's what really matters. Indeed, electricity is really all that matters in life. And running <laughs> in so water, many ways. maybe a washing machine, having, <laughs> yeah. having a computer there is pretty nice too. But anyway, if you would like to hear more about what really matters in life and you want to listen to more of Justin and I's musings about the world and well, life in general, you can check us out at our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on a Stitcher app. You can leave us a voicemail in our online voicemail box. You can find us on Skype. You can listen to us on the radio if you're in Canada and you can listen to all of our archives through iTunes for free. If you feel really, really passionate about the show and you want to drop us a couple dollars, there's a link on our website to do that as well. In speaking about the donate button, many thanks to Kevin from Los Angeles, California, who's found that donate link on our website and sent us a really generous donation. So Kevin, we're going to send you our bonus content for the Extra Environmentalist for the month of uh, February. And you're definitely going to enjoy it because it's a good one. And like we were saying, you know, we're having this intimate conversation with our listeners. If you want to fire it back the other direction, there's an email link, but also there's voicemail. There's ways to reach us by voicemail. And so Seth, how can people reach us if they want to call in and tell us a story or, or let us know what they're thinking? People can reach the Extra Environmentalist by dialing 1 for the country code of the United States, 919-701-9872. And when you leave us a voicemail, you'll receive our winter mixtape, which Justin has put together and he would love to send to you. And thanks to everyone who's been emailing in, giving us suggestions for people to interview. You know, I wish we could put a podcast out more often, but both Seth and I are, are pretty busy folks. And so we're going to try to get to as many of the people that uh, you're suggesting that we talk to as possible. Thanks for everyone who's following us on Twitter now. The number of Twitter followers we have has just shot up dramatically. And most of all, thanks to all the people who are going around and sharing us on Reddit. That's been incredible. You know, we get a big inflow of visitors to our site whenever anyone posts us on Reddit. And we've had a few people post us in different categories on Reddit, the collapse category, the Occupy Wall Street category category and so that's really cool whenever I take a look at the traffic you know every few days on the website and I see oh you know a few days ago there's a massive spike in traffic because one of you threw us on reddit and that's so awesome so thanks for doing that thanks for spreading the word about the extra environmentalist you can check out our blog as well which uh, we've been populating with all kinds of articles we have another one coming up really really soon you can find that going to our website www.extraenvironmentalist.com and you put the slash blog which stands for blog that is what it is it's a blog so thanks again for taking your precious time and putting it towards listening to the extra environmentalist we'll look forward to catching you on episode number 37 and to all those people who have watches that are falling apart try really hard to keep the super glue off of your fingers because it really burns
So in, in one level of life, I can think I'm here, you're over there, and either I see something or you see something. In the next level of evolution, we don't see life like this. Life becomes aware of itself, which means if there is seeing in the room, it's contagious, it's viral. So it spreads immediately. People who are more awake, just being around them transforms you up. When it transforms you up, you become much more aware of what you are normally identified with. So normally you don't see it, and therefore you are in it. You think, this is me, this is how life looks like. Suddenly you meet someone that is much more awake, so you need to be more awake because the awake state transmits itself into the surrounding constantly. Even if these people don't talk, even if they sit beside you in the bus, it happens. And they don't talk to you. Why? Because there is an intensity of awareness. Ego awareness means that you become aware of the structures of your individual self. But if you continue this process, then the awareness rises to all the structures of the collective self and to more than this. So if you meet somebody that is really awake, you meet the awareness to the structures that you are identified with. So you see that actually with a true teacher, you see that the teacher is not separate from you. The teacher is the deepest part that you are awakening into. On one level it looks like people, on the level of people we see just people. But on a higher, more transpersonal level, life is not so personal. So from a certain level of transpersonal insight, you don't experience yourself anymore so separate. So the contraction, the structure of consciousness that I'm identified with, because the awareness is rising, you suddenly start feeling it as a contraction. So if the awareness around you rises, then to push something down and to keep something unseen and to not feel it will be more painful. So therefore it will arise in you even stronger. So the gift that you can have, and I think that everybody who is really interested in what we are talking here about needs to look for people that are more awake than themselves. If we don't look for these people in our life, it means we don't want to wake up because we want to stay the same who we are. I always describe it as a mountain. Water flows down the mountain. So all of us, and especially when we work with people, when we are teachers, therapists, school teachers, whatever, we always need to look that the water flows down the mountain to us, which means we need to look for people that we can learn from. And we need to allow the water through us, and we need to pass the water on. If you block the water above you because you think you know everything, you're stuck because you block the wisdom of life to come to you. If we don't respect this principle, we create a sick society. Because dry grass means that people will die because the culture doesn't work. So everybody who thinks that they are more than they are, are stuck. But not only for themselves, they are stuck for the whole culture that they are living in because they don't allow the water to go through. What we do has consequences for us and for the whole. Next time, 
Only extra environmentalist. We are almost continuously bombarded by the mass media by advertising that there are these new techno gadgets, the new products, etc., that will make us happy and that will solve our problems. But we need to recognize that, of course, this is a very biased view of technology because there is a vested interest here by companies to sell these technological products and goods and services. And so there is a vested interest here to keep techno-optimism alive. I personally believe that actually techno-optimism is based to a large degree on ignorance of the relevant facts. And we coined something in TechnoFix, we called it optimism is inversely proportional to knowledge, meaning the more knowledge you have, the less optimistic you will be, and the least you know the more optimistic you will be. And I have seen it at technical conferences when a, when a scientist presents something or an engineer presents a new concept, the people who know least about this area are very impressed by these new ideas. But uh, if you talk to a person who's working in the same field, those, those people, those experts are much less optimistic. They have much more guarded optimism. From NBC News in Washington, this is Meet the Press with David Gregor. Welcome to Meet the Press, the show that presses people who know most about politics. This Sunday, we'll be putting the iron to some of the most influential people in politics. Inflammatory comments by Rick Semtorum about creating sustainable civilization is a die-off necessary. It's not about contraception. It's about government control of your lives. Let's take it to the political roundtable, where we will be talking to White House janitor Samuel Franco, whose epic works include cleaning up the White House dog Bo's many accidents and Lady Obama's toilets after a wild night out. Next, we'll be talking to Republican National Committee liaison to His Dark Holiness will join us to cast his stone on the best nominee. And mother of radio firebrand Alex Jones, we bring you Alex Jones's mother. Today, we'll be discussing who is best of the Republican candidates to lead our country into the pending population die-off. What strategies? What tactics? What's for dinner? Let's kick it over to Sam for an inside look of what's going on inside the White House. The Obama administration is completely ready for whatever the Republican Party nominates in terms of executing this die-off. What they're planning is to put everyone on some kind of diet food. That diet food has no kind of nutrition whatsoever. It'll be marked as, quote, unquote, low-fat food. What that actually means is there's zero nutritious content whatsoever. Everyone will starve and then the die-off will commence. The trickle-down effect in action. Your Dark Holiness, please tell us about your pick for the Republican national nominee that will lead us best into the die-off that our country is bound for. Yes, it is very fortunate to be the entity that is collaborating between the dark nether regions of the underworld and the Republican National Committee. We've been preparing for this day for quite a long time in collaboration with our partners at the Republican National Committee. They have been hearing our strategy proposals, looking at our policy papers, and they've been really pleased with the way that we've been progressing for the massive influx of forever imprisoned souls that we'll soon be receiving. I believe that of the leading candidates at the moment, Mitt Romney is very well prepared to execute a die-off because he has a lot of experience gutting 
corporations, therefore he would be ideal for guiding most of the American population and the population of the world. Newt Gingrich is so obsessed with himself, everyone else will die off around him as he stares at himself in a mirror. Rick Santorum will outlaw birth control, meaning there will be 2 billion Americans, meaning that 16 Earths will be required, everyone will die, and last of all, Ron Paul will require everyone to eat gold. Let's kick it over to Alex Jones's mother. Tell us about your picks for the Republican nominee. I think that all those Republican candidates are very funny looking. One day I would like to see a, a political candidate with a beard because I don't ever see any political candidates with beards. I listen to my son on the radio every day. I listen to all six plus hours of his broadcast, you know. Well, Alex Jones's mother, it looks like you get to meet the press. <gasps> oh, oh. Sam Franco, do you have a rebuttal to Mrs. Alex Jones? Yeah, I, I gotta say that uh, the White House is definitely prepared to use Obama's image in executing the die-off because he is a racial minority himself. It makes him more qualified to slaughter racial minorities around the world, and they're planning to use that to their advantage. I think it's definitely something that none of the Republican candidates really have in their court. We're headed into a commercial break right now. When we get back, we will jump into how Democrats and Republicans can completely ignore the national budget. <laughs> 